All right, I'm going to uh, read the passages for today. Uh, the, the way that this series is ordered was basically random. Uh, we, I just sort of picked through the seven deadly sins and just said, well, this week seems fine. Um, and so this week we'll start with the vice of wrath. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and, they, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. And finally, this little verse from the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of God made available to us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that our hearts would be brought low in humility, that we would be cowed in awe before the wonder and the grace that we see at the cross. God, reshape our hearts by your mercy. 
Let our hearts be tender before you now and increasingly so with our neighbors, with our friends, with our brothers and sisters in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, we live in a world that runs on an economy of anger. Quite literally. Um, a great many people in our world are, are much richer, materially richer, because of the power and the addictive nature of anger. Mark Zuckerberg, Rupert Murdoch, anybody else that owns a big tech company or a, a cable news station is very much aware of the power of anger and leverages that power constantly for the increase of their own wealth to the detriment and destruction of your mind and your heart. When we talk about the way that the world operates and how we ought to be responsible people in the world who are responsible for their own sinful inclinations and behaviors, we as Christians recognize this dynamic that we are personally responsible for the way that we conduct our lives and that the world at large is enmeshed in systems of opposition to God himself. So that even if you are doing your level best to be an even-tempered, in-control kind of person that Paul describes, you have to contend with forces much larger than yourself who are acting on you and actively driving you in the opposite direction of Jesus. So that when we are moving towards the vision of the good life that Jesus himself paints, both explicitly in the Gospels and through the entirety of the Scriptures, when you feel like you are swimming upstream, it is not an illusion. You are. And in the waters rushing against you is this addictive narrative of anger. Our world is, has been consumed and driven by it for quite some time. But I think we can all look back over the past two years and see increased evidence of that anger. That the language of our people and of our day is fury. It is the restless need to find the next target who we eliminate because of their impurity and the way that they have grieved us. And this is not the, the sin of the left or the sin of the right. It is the sin of our nation as a whole. We swim in boiling waters filled with wrath. Now, anger is not bad. Anger is no bad thing. 
In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung pulls from the tradition of Thomas Aquinas and other philosophers and says, anger is actually an appropriate and good thing. Anger's opposite is, is ought to be justice. And so when anger is operating correctly, it is angry at injustice. And we can see Jesus himself being angry in the Gospels, which we'll look at later. Paul himself does not say in Ephesians 4, do not be angry. That's not the commandment that he gives. What he says is be angry and do not sin. But there are good ways to be angry, and there are times in which we sin by not being angry. That ought to be acknowledged so that when you, for example, are looking at the news lately and seeing Russia roll into Ukraine under the guise of lies of why they ought to be there and seeing people needlessly dying because of these things happen, you ought to be angry. That is evil that is happening. It is grievous that war happens. Last night I was watching uh, a documentary kind of thing, a, a special about five speeches of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass uh, was a, a man who ran from slavery uh, and became a, a leading voice in the abolitionist movement in the 19th century in this country. Um, incredibly important. You've probably seen his picture. There's lots of pictures of uh, Frederick Douglass. Um, he was angry at slavery. And if you listen to his speeches, it, even now, decades and decades removed from his life, they crackle with the power of his anger. And Frederick Douglass's anger was justified because slavery is a horrendous violation of the good creation of God. So I'm not here to tell you that anger is bad. But what I am going to speak to and point to both in the scriptures and in the Christian tradition is the real nature of the beast. Is that we are susceptible to fall prey to anger unbridled. And this is often how, and you can see it in Jesus' teachings in the gospel. You can see it throughout the Christian tradition. The understanding is that anger is not a problem. It is when anger is out of control that it is a problem. And my suggestion to you is your experience of anger is far more likely to be sinful and unhealthy than it is to be righteous and in control. And I speak that word to you as a sinner. Because I myself am a wrathful person. I am not here to stand up and tell you, let me show you how I have tamed the beast. I'm here to tell you as one who has been in the grips of wrath many times how it will absolutely destroy you 
and make you feel as if you are justified all along. Wrath, as we are talking about, is dangerous because it is disordered affection. You go wrong in anger. When you get angry at the wrong thing, or you get angry to the wrong degree. And there are different ways in which you can experience them. And I can say from my own experience, uh, I have no preference. I can do both equally well. And this force is so destructive that we can hear Paul's emphasis on chasing out this enemy. His description of the nature of Christian community is so deeply challenging that you can't help but read it and make qualifications and put asterisks in the text and put footnotes and say, but, but this or when I. But Paul's vision does not allow for that kind of footnoting and excuse making. And it is far easier for us to read the various kinds of commandments in the New Testament that forbid things that we are comfortable forbidding. But when Paul commands that the Christian community be full of a kind of speech that is gentle and kind and forgiving, almost all of us say, well, that optional. That's sort of... That's nice, that's cute, Paul, but that's not really that important. Now, I can pull more New Testament texts where these commands are reaffirmed again and again, because this is not the only time in Ephesians 4 when Paul insists that Christian community should not be a place where anger takes hold, when forgiveness is the rule of the day. He means it very seriously. And the kind of kindness and gentleness and forgiving that Paul commands is not, is not weak. It demonstrates the strength that comes from God. Because our nature and the easiest thing that we can do is to deviate in these forms of disordered anger. When I am offended by any of you, when I'm offended by strangers who drive in front of me, when I'm offended by the things that I see on TV, I would love to tell you about the righteousness of the object of my anger, but the truth is you have run into my kingdom and I am offended. You have told me that I am wrong and I'd love to tell you that what I care most about what is right is wrong, but what I care most about is me being right. I would love to tell you that my anger is just about pursuing the good and the true and the beautiful. But what I'm often most angry about is that I have been dishonored as the king of my kingdom. It is ludicrous how angry I get if somebody drives 10 miles per hour too fast or too slow. 
What I want them to do is drive exactly my speed, which is five miles per hour over the posted speed limit. <laughs> That's what I want. And if anybody transgresses, I am furious. Now look, sometimes I'm furious for a good reason. Some fools are speeding on the road and driving recklessly, and I'm driving my family. And I am furious because I care about their life and well-being. But sometimes I'm just driving by myself, and I don't particularly like the insult of someone tailgating me and implicating me as a slow driver, as an irresponsible one. You're the reckless one, buddy. You will wait. My anger is often not about right ends. It is about me. And the degree to which my anger explodes into life and or the length of time that I allow it to endure is inappropriate. Is it annoying? To have to answer the same question for the fourth time in a row from each different member of my family. Yes, it is. Is it that annoying? No, it is not. But my anger leaps up disproportionately to the way that I am wronged. And often there is no wrong, it's just me being annoyed. But I have been wronged. That's real. I've been wronged. I've been hurt. And it's okay to say, that was wrong, and that hurt me, and that should never have happened. But what is not okay is to hang on to that offense with an iron grip and to never let it go. To keep in my pocket this way that you have offended or wronged or failed me, hidden from you, perhaps years at a time, but convenient to my grasp that I might whip it out and use it against you whenever I need it. That kind of enduring anger that never lets go is sinful vice. And Jesus clarifies the extent to which you are in danger when that kind of anger runs rampant in your soul, what he says is that anger is murderous. See, in our time and place, we are so used to the vocabulary of anger and fury that it becomes unremarkable to us unless it is levied against us directly. And we are so easy and free with our dismissal of this kind of eruptive anger that would erase people in relationships. We've become so used to it. 
But Jesus' words do not allow that kind of dismissal. He says, in your heart, you, have com- you are complicit with murder. And you can see in his description both this too much and wrong end in his example this sort of eruption of insult, you fool, and this likely labeling for no good reason. Instead of being angry at the thing that's happened, you fix your anger on the person that's done it. So even in his example, he's showing us how this often comes out in our lives. And he says, this anger is destructive, it is murderous, and you are in danger of the hell of fire. That is sobering that Jesus would instruct us this way. I know the screen is up. Can you put the words of the thing? Just No, you don't have to lower the thing. Just put it. It's fine. You can sort of look through it. Okay, go ahead and lower it. Fine. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the Westminster Larger Catechism, the uh, Catechism of our church. This is a modern translation of it. What does the Sixth Commandment require? The Sixth Commandment is you shall not murder in the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment requires us to do our best to make every lawful effort to preserve our own life and the lives of others. We do this by not thinking about or planning, by controlling our emotions, and by avoiding all opportunities, temptations, or actions that would promote or lead to the unjust taking of someone's life. In the pursuit of that goal, we must defend others from violence, patiently endure the afflictions from God's hand, have a quiet mind and a cheerful spirit, practice temperance in the way we eat, Drink, take medications, sleep, work, and play. We should also harbor charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. Our speech and behavior should be peaceful, mild, and courteous. We should be tolerant of others, be ready to be reconciled patiently put up with and forgive injuries against us and return good for evil. Finally, we should provide aid and comfort to those in distress as well as protect and defend the innocent. Now, this is not just Westminster. Many catechisms of various streams of Christianity will also do this with all the commandments. Expand out what are the implications of these commandments. This is a a pretty typical interpretation of what Christians are bound to in the sixth commandment. And notice how radically different these words are than the place and time in which we live. We ought to have a quiet mind and a cheerful spirit. We should practice temperance. We should harbor charitable thoughts. We are a culture that does the complete opposite, not intent on being charitable to those with whom we disagree and assuming the best about their desires and intentions. We assume by habit the very worst about everyone around us who would disagree with us. 
They do not just believe or vote differently than me. They are Nazis or communists or demons. And those habits are the habits that we swim in all the time. But look at the vision of life painted by Jesus and by all those who follow Jesus, who speak in wisdom and grace. What if we lived in a community of people? What if we lived in households where people actually looked like this? What if we had done the past two years within the church at large with people who looked like this? Yes, I hate masks, or yes, I love masks. And all those people who disagree with me, they're doing their very best. And I think they're wrong. But I love them. Instead of pushing them away, I'm going to come closer to them. And where we've disagreed too strongly... I'm going to be eager to be made right with them. Instead of trying to distance myself as far as possible. I'm going to try to be an instrument of healing in their life. Instead of trying to vindictively wound them because they wounded me. I think the church could have looked a lot different the past two years but we would rather try to ride the dragon of wrath which is delusion we have instead by and large in so many cases been eaten by it and a watching world rightfully asks what difference is there What difference does it make? Your speech sounds like everybody else's. And it's a fair question. Wrath is in the air that we breathe. So what is the solution? Proverbs 15.1 is just one example. Proverbs has loads of instruction actually on, on... wrath and anger, and I really could not read to you. I don't have enough time to read to you all that it says about wrath. In Proverbs 15.1, it says, a, a soft or gentle answer turns away wrath. Are we a people who are habitually committed to the soft and the gentle answer with one another? Let me tell you, the soft and the gentle answer often doesn't feel good. Not for me. Maybe you're not like me. God bless you. I prefer the sharp answer. I'm good at it. Alarmingly good at it. Because I've been practicing for almost 37 years. It feels relieving. When somebody snaps something off of me to snap right back at them and to do it a lot better and to cut them down. 
you can't beat me at that game. That's how I feel. But a soft answer, a soft answer is healing. The, the forfeiture of my agenda, my need to protect my own territory and instead just sort of lay down my arms and give them grace. It winds things down so quickly. Maybe not for both of us, but at least for me. And I know that what I have committed myself to in that moment when I finally can give the right answer is not a slavery or a humiliation. It's freedom. Because the power of those lies so easily dissipate when you give yourself in to the life of Jesus. And I would love to tell you that this is just a matter of habit. Just, hey, guys, just don't be angry. I'm sorry, does that work for anybody? I, I try that approach with my children mostly because I am angry and I just want them to stop doing whatever they're doing. Just don't do that. Does that work very well? Probably not if you're a normal person. You need to look at Jesus. You need to see what Jesus' anger is and does and how Jesus himself becomes God's gentle answer. We have stories like in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 11 where Jesus gets angry. And what he gets angry at is people who cannot get on board with what he is doing. In Mark chapter 3, he's going to heal somebody whose hand is withered, and the Pharisees don't want him to do it because it's the Sabbath. And Jesus is angry at them. But Jesus' response out of his anger is not what mine would be, which is to smite them. Instead, he turns to the man with the crippled hand. And he says, stretch out your hand. And he heals him. In Luke chapter 11, it's a very famous story. Jesus' friend dies. And he goes to be with his friends, Mary and Martha. He's known that Lazarus is going to die the whole way. And they come to him and they say, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And they're not even wrong. And he sees the people are consumed in grief. And, and the English translation says he's deeply moved, which is not really a great translation. What it really says is that he's furious. Whether he's furious at the people's inability to believe that he will do what he says he would, or whether he's furious at death or both, Jesus is deeply moved, and then he weeps. And then what does he do? He heals. The anger, the righteous anger of Jesus is fixed on the right ends to the right degree and it results in healing. 
And the place where you need to see that most readily and consistently is at the cross. The antidote for a self-seeking, self-protecting, grudge-holding anger is to see the crucified Jesus and to know that instead of standing before a judge in which you have to be terrified, you can see the icon of God's kindness and gentleness towards you. That the wounds of Jesus are the declaration of God's patience with you. It is so tempting for Christians to give themselves over to this besetting sin, this wrath, under the cover of being right. I think that's where we see it most frequently. My sin, my sinful anger and resentment and grudge holding is justified because I am right. And we can feel good about ourselves as we continually drink the poison of that kind of unforgiving bitterness and wrath. I was wronged. I am in the right. If people would just follow what I said. On and on and on. Who has ever been more right than Jesus? No one. And Jesus' response as the one in the right is to embrace all of the weapons of our own wrath and to indeed deliver us for, for the right and good judgment and wrath of God. so that you and I can be healed. If you have been wounded and imprisoned by the sin of this kind of anger, you are invited to look at the cross. That is not to erase what maybe terrible things have happened to you, that is not to say that the, the, the relational break between you and somebody else is, is based on a figment of your imag imagination. That does not mean any of this is easy. That's not what any of this means. But the anger that you are holding on to and nursing along in the quiet thoughts of your mind and in your heart is not a treatment for those things. It is an extension of them. You do not possess your anger. Your anger is possessing you. And you are enslaved. Jesus is coming to set you free. So that you might hear the kind and gentle answer of God forever. And this 
Lenten season this morning, you need to hear what we talked about last week. That the spirit of repentance is not a spirit of shame and condemnation. It is a spirit of homecoming. Your Father in heaven loves you. And while you're still an angry, wrathful sinner and enemy, he died for you. Today, I would invite you to come home to him. And the Father is not asking you to do better before you come home. The Father is running out to your weary, wrathful soul and slinging his cloak around you and saying that he is delighted that you are with him again. And if today you are here with people that you know you have been resolute in your wrathfulness towards, Jesus invites you to the freedom of going to your brother or your sister to forgive and ask for forgiveness. It is terrifying. It is scary. It is hard. It is humbling. And it is the only way you will get out of the prison that you are in. You can fool yourself into thinking that you can control and master this beast. But it is a delusion nonetheless. The forgiveness of God that we receive from the gentle answer of Jesus is the only way that this wrath will be turned away from the domain of your heart. Jesus is so good and so kind. He has been kind to me, the most wrathful person that I know. Every one of you could come up to me and say that you have hurt me. And I would be unsurprised. My children's list of ways that I have wrathfully wronged them will carry them well into years of counseling. And no matter how long my list of accounts of wrongs on this front I have never found God's patience to be shorter than my account. He is always, always, always tender and kind to his children. And his patience and his love and his mercy runs far longer than you could ever hope or imagine. In him, you can be free. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, it is in your cross that we can see the established and fixed nature of your love and kindness towards us. We are so grateful 
We, we deserve a kind of wrath. We, de- we deserve righteous wrath. We deserve real justice fixed on us. And what you deliver to us is, is mercy. And we are so, so grateful. And God, I pray that anybody who's here who's been carrying the weight of their own unrighteous anger and bitterness and resentment, whether as a means of protection or punishment, God, I pray that they would be free from that burden, that you will release people here who have been weighted down for years, who can't stop confessing confessing the litany of the wrongs done to them and the rights that they are given over to. God, I pray that you free people here. And Father, I pray that we would have a spirit of repentance, of gentleness, of kindness, that we would be eager to be reconciled with one another, that our whole lives, together and individually, will be marked by this kind of communal life that protects, that encourages, that celebrates the life that comes from God alone. Father, make us to be that kind of people. I pray that our hearts would not be able to leave the cross, that we would be able to not stop looking at the beauty of the cross, even though they're overwhelmed by it. God, I pray that we would be able to see it more and more clearly, that we would be transformed by that vision again and again, and we would find the habits of our heart would more and more be turning to offer kindness and mercy to others. God, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to have the vision of the cross shape our lives into cruciform lives. Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness towards us. I pray that that faithfulness and kindness would mark our life together in increasing measure so that all might come and see the greatness of who you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.